most modern people, even, even Christian people, view the world through the lens of philosophical materialism. That is, we view our world in terms of the matter it's made of rather than its meaning. Our, our minds and our imaginations are more oriented toward the, the raw materials of the world than to what those raw materials mean. And even phrasing it that way can sound strange. What do you mean, mean? How does the world mean anything? If I were to ask you the question, what is reality? My guess is that your initial impulse would be to point to, to, point to something tangible, something material, something you can see, something you can touch or taste or feel. That, that is reality. Modern people are, by default, materialists. Or perhaps I should say, modern adults are, by default, materialists. Because children are not. Children are born with a sense of wonder, with a strong appreciation for all things mysterious. For children, every, everything is new and exciting all the time. But as we age, our, our culture discourages us from, from venturing outside the, the realm of the tangible world or the measurable world or the scientifically verifiable world. For materialists, everything has a, a scientific explanation, ultimately. Deep down, all of our experiences are just a series of atomic and molecular collisions. And while that may be technically true, to the degree that we are satisfied with that explanation, we rob ourselves of, of some of the wonder and beauty and mystery of life in this world. According to G.K. Chesterton, when you destroy mystery, you create morbidity. I recently heard a story of um, a Christian man who enjoyed raising pigeons in his backyard. And one day, the man's neighbor came over and asked him about the pigeons. And the man explained that these were homing pigeons, you could, you could take them a thousand miles away and they would find their way back to this very spot. And so naturally, the neighbor asked, how do they know to go home? And the man replied, God tells them to. Now, if you, if you really think about it, that is a profoundly philosophical answer. It says a lot about how that man views the world. And I, I would submit that it is the truest answer he could possibly give to that question. God tells them to. But as you might expect, the, the neighbor wasn't quite satisfied with that answer. And so he pressed for a better answer, a more scientific answer. And so the man began talking about northern and southern magnetic lines and, and forces and the Coriolis effect and how pigeons can triangulate and map their position. And the man was satisfied with that answer. But he was satisfied with that answer despite the fact that he was no closer to actually understanding how it worked. 
You see, it's just that he was given the explanation in terms that he had already come to accept because he was, by default, a materialist. For the materialist, the world is just made up of stuff. The world is just made up of stuff. The materialist doesn't doesn't hear the created order shouting with joy to its creator. The materialist doesn't see how creation has been finely tuned to display the character of God. For the materialist, the world is not charged with the grandeur of a living God. Rather, the world is a relatively cold and empty and ultimately meaningless place. So, why am I talking about philosophical materialism? First of all, because it impacts how we view the world and how we make sense of the world. It impacts how we derive our our meaning and sense of purpose. It impacts our joy and our faith and, and our sense of gratitude. But it also impacts how we read the Bible. It impacts how we read the book of Hebrews especially. As as functional materialists, we assume that, that the symbolism in the Bible is basically arbitrary. It's kind of beside the point. Meaning the, the, the symbolism in the Bible was not part of God's original creational intent. So when the psalmist says, God is my rock, we, we imagine the psalmist sitting there writing the psalm and, and looking around at a number of different tangible items and somewhat arbitrarily deciding that a rock might be a good metaphor for communicating the abstract idea he's thinking about. But actually, if, if the world is charged with the grandeur of a living God, we must conclude that God imagined and created and designed the rockness of rocks for the primary purpose of communicating to us the godness of God. God is not just like a rock. Rather, rocks were created in the first place to communicate something about God. In other words, God has created a universe that is it's charged with symbolism. A universe that is constantly trying to direct our attention heavenward. That is the world we actually live in. And if we don't experience the world that way, it it just reveals that we need to immerse ourselves even more deeply in the world of the Holy Scriptures. Science is a true gift. And we have wonderful and beautiful and God-glorifying scientific explanations for so many different things. But But it remains profoundly true that homing pigeons come home because God tells them to. And so as we turn to Hebrews chapter 8, my hope is that we can all do our best to enter into the symbolic world of the Bible, a world that is charged with the grandeur of a living God, a world that is constantly trying to direct our attention heavenward. Verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Note that Jesus is described as a minister in the holy places. The word minister is the Greek word from which we derive the English word liturgy. Jesus is a liturgist in the holy places. Jesus is a worship leader in the holy places. Jesus is right now conducting heavenly worship in a heavenly sanctuary. And verse 2 calls this heavenly sanctuary the true tent set up by God. The true tent set up by God. As we read today from Exodus chapter 40, Moses was commanded by God to set up a tent, a tabernacle, to serve as an earthly sanctuary. And verse 5 indicates that the earthly sanctuary set up by Moses was, from the very beginning, a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary set up by God. The tabernacle was an earthly replica of a heavenly sanctuary. Verse 5, prior to Jesus, the high priest served a copy and shadow, a replica of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God revealed to Moses a heavenly set of blueprints, a heavenly pattern. And he instructed Moses to build the tabernacle in accordance with that pattern. Why? Well, because we live in a world that is charged with symbolism. A world that is charged with the grandeur of living God. A world that is constantly trying to direct our attention heavenward. So think of the tabernacle like a model car. A model car is in itself a real thing. But it's ultimately a miniaturized version of a fuller and truer thing. And this was a very important point for the author of Hebrews to be making because in the year 70 AD, the earthly sanctuary in Jerusalem was completely destroyed. So so put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jewish Christian. Everything you know about the proper worship of God is it's tied up in the earthly sanctuary. But if the earthly sanctuary is reduced to rubble, what are you supposed to do? Well, says the author of Hebrews, the good news of the high priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek is that we have a divine liturgist ministering on our behalf in a heavenly sanctuary. So we don't, we don't need the tent set up by Moses because our worship now takes place within the tent set up by God. Earthly worship. This right here, this right here, is participation in heavenly worship. Earthly worship is participation in heavenly worship. You know what? We've never done this before. Can you say that with me? Earthly worship is participation in heavenly worship. Ready? Earthly worship is participation in heavenly worship. Wow, look at us. All right. I want you to remind yourself of that. Every Sunday morning, it will change the way you show up. 
It'll change the way you experience. It'll change your perspective on what's, what's happening here. Let's return to that analogy of the model car, thinking again about these, these first century Jewish Christians. The message is that, that for them to cling to the old ways, to cling to the earthly sanctuary, would be like a 16-year-old boy insisting on playing with a Hot Wheels car despite the fact that his father had given him the keys to the actual car that the toy was patterned after. Again, God said to Moses, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Moses was permitted to glimpse heavenly worship, the heavenly sanctuary, and to see what worship is like there. And that is a really big deal. We sing the Lord's Prayer every week. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But that's a, that's a really meaningless thing to pray unless we actually know something about heaven. If we had not seen heaven or at least been told what heaven is like, then the church would not be able to, to fulfill her calling to heavenize the earth. But as it is, there are, there are numerous instances in the Bible wherein a person is permitted to see what heaven is truly like. Today we saw Moses. We could also talk about David or Ezekiel or the Apostle John. And every time heaven is revealed in Scripture, our understanding of heaven gets clearer and clearer and, and fuller and fuller. Out in the foyer, there's a little booklet titled Guide to Our Liturgy. And, and the purpose of that booklet is to show that, that our liturgy, what we do here on Sundays, ha has actually been patterned after the liturgical sequence we find in Leviticus chapter 9. Why? Because the worship service recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 9 was itself patterned after worship taking place in the heavenly sanctuary. And so worship before Jesus was patterned after heavenly worship and worship after Jesus ought to be patterned after heavenly worship. But there's a key difference. And the key difference is that Jesus has now ascended into that heavenly sanctuary where he is ministering on our behalf and presenting himself before the Father eternally as a living sacrifice. In the words of chapter 6, Christ has obtained a ministry. He has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. We'll, we'll talk about, more about this idea of covenant mediation in the weeks to come, um, but for today I just want to introduce the concept of a covenant. Throughout the Bible, God makes a series of promises promises which bind him to his people. But God doesn't bind himself flippantly. These are not casual agreements. When God promises something, he does so formally and with great intentionality. He ratifies and he validates his promises with covenants, which are more than just mere contracts. What distinguishes a covenant from a contract is that a covenant establishes a unique relationship 
When a covenant is made, in a marriage, for instance, the, the parties to the covenant make a mutual commitment that establishes and strengthens a living relationship. This means that God wants to be in a relationship with us, in a covenant relationship with us. He is not content with being the distant God, silently pulling the strings, or worse, ignoring us completely. No, God, God wants to know us, and God wants to be known by us within the context of a committed covenant relationship. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying, um, and really what the next few chapters are going to continue to say, is that God is renewing, God is updating his covenant commitment to us. With the coming of the Messiah, the time has come to renew our vows, so to speak. Verse 7, God's new covenant is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant, that pre-Jesus covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So what are, what are these, these better promises that the Lord is making to us? The author of Hebrews begins to answer that question with a long quote from Jeremiah 31, uh, which we'll cover in more detail in the coming weeks. But for now, though, I, I, I just want us to recognize that the new covenant does not mean that God has started over. In fact, in, in verse 8, when God says that he will establish a new covenant, that word establish is a Greek word that means to bring to completion or to fulfill. And so there is a great deal of continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. The new covenant does not replace the old covenant any more than the adult Drew has replaced the child Drew. The new covenant is the old covenant. It's just all grown up now. We have progressed. The relationship between God and his people has matured. Because of Jesus, we have transitioned from, from playing with Hot Wheels to driving around an actual car. We have transitioned from the replica sanctuary built by Moses to the true, original sanctuary built by God. Our worship is heavenly worship. Again, we'll, we'll be exploring what that means in the coming weeks, but here's a teaser. Jesus, your high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, is perfectly able to clean your slate, morally speaking. He is able to give you a clean bill of spiritual health. He is able to purge you of the sin that's eating you from within. And this is such good news. Because it means that, that you and me, it means that you, little old you, can have the confidence to enter into the very throne room of God. You can enter into the control center of the entire universe. And when you enter there, you are seen. And not only are you seen, but, 
you, you get to speak there. And when you speak there, you are heard. Be shocked by that. Be astounded by that. I know you can't see the throne room of God. I know you can't touch the throne room of God. But faith, according to Hebrews 11, is the conviction of things not seen. And so have faith. And don't be a functional materialist. The world is charged with the grandeur of a living God, and it's all pointing you heavenward. The proper response is to draw near to him. You can draw near to him in this moment as we worship together. You can also draw near to him every moment by prayer. Whether you are changing a diaper or arguing a case in court, whether you are preparing for a difficult conversation with your boss, whether you are going on a nice leisurely stroll through the, par- through the park, whether you are doing your homework or throwing a baseball, you can draw near to God. It's what you need most. That is what you need most, and it's what he wants most. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a distant God. You have made all things to be a means of communion with you. You didn't have to do that, but we're grateful you did. Jesus, we thank you for your ministry on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary, the true tent. Holy Spirit, tune our our spiritual senses to the reality of what's taking place when we worship and help us to draw near to the throne of God every moment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.